We've been Christian greetings this morning in the name of Jesus. It's good to be here again in Weavertown, Elmish Mennonite Church. It's been a good while that we were here on Sunday morning. I have a lot of good memories of this place. It was here, here in the front bench some years ago, I guess it was 1958, when I made a public declaration, and I never regretted that I did that, of Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ and his church. I was baptized uh, by George Byler. You, many of you wouldn't know him. He was a father of late Christian Byler, and uh, he was a very interesting, knowledgeable preacher, always such a good uh, uh, spirit of thankfulness and gratefulness. And I'm thankful today that I made that decision way back there in um, the Lord's uh, kingdom. Jewish evangelism. I guess this is a little bit of a mix between telling you about how I became interested in that and also a Sunday morning message. So I request your prayers in that. It was uh, the Amish Mennonite Information Center, known as the Little Red Schoolhouse. How many of you know where that is? If you have seen it, you you drove by, or maybe you even were there. It's a very quaint old building, antique, you might say. I hope it will never be demolished, but uh, I don't know what will happen. But it's uh, a little red schoolhouse. That's what it is. I went to school there eight years. My father went to school there, and my grandfather as well. Back, it was built in 1857. And uh, in the early, in the late 60s, our churches were interested in reaching out to uh, the tourists around here. And so it was decided through some lots of discussion. A board was uh, elected and uh, the Little Red Schoolhouse was decided upon as a place to have an information center, which is a good way to reach out. Uh, The Lord led us there as a family we were there the first seven summers from 1969 to 1976. Uh, I say this because one of the visions of this school was Jewish outreach, Jewish evangelism in connection with meeting all the other tours. And it so happened in those first years that we had sometimes as many as 100 cars or parties signed the guest book, stop in there. That meant there was many more who stopped in during that time. See, it was before the days of GPSs. Now, we had telephone there, you know. We had phone service. We weren't that far on behind. We were just a little bit behind what we see now. But anyway, uh, people needed to know where there was interesting places to stop here in Lancaster County. And many of these people, interestingly, were Jewish people. Alan Lee Stolzfus, a part of our board, was a, he put a thrust on this to reach out to Jewish people is one of our interesting goals. And interestingly, he came off the Pennsylvania Turnpike exit in Morgantown, drove up Route 23. We had several signs along the way, large signs, and they're still there, of uh, stopping at this place for tourist information. It just drew the crowds. I remember one time in July uh, of uh, probably 1970, that uh, we didn't get closed till 9 o'clock at night because they just kept pouring in, pouring in, wondering where there's motels, wondering about this and that. And more than that, our main interest and goal was to share 
uh, talk about Jesus Christ and have tracts and books available there for that. And among this was the interest in Jewish people. And uh, interestingly, there were so many Jewish people, surprisingly many, especially from New York City. <coughs> we say greetings in Yeshua et a Moshiach, which means greetings in Jesus' name. That's certainly a, uh, a very worthwhile greeting, shalom, uh, peace be with you, peace in all kinds of ways. This is a term that Jewish people uh, use over and over again. <clears throat> I want to break this message down this morning. Why witness to Jewish people? How can we be tactful in our witness? And how can we begin a conversation? It was during the 1990s then that um, we, my wife and I, uh, became somewhat interested in New York City, and we traveled up there sometimes. That was before Brent and Rhoda lived there, and uh, took some people along, church people and so forth, to go out in the streets of uh, Coney Island, southern Brooklyn, and in other places to talk to Jewish people. I, I use this verse in Mark 1.17, it's a good verse. Jesus is calling some followers. He's calling Peter and John. Peter and Andrew and James and John. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And it seems sometimes like I'm at the stage, in a kindergarten stage, of still becoming this. It is a type of a work that is interesting in many ways, but it's not always very uh, the most likable, cheering type of work. Why witness to them anyway? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126, 5 and 6. I'll have several scriptures, and I invite you to go with them. I have a little card here while you're turning there. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. I have a little card here that shows some mustard seeds. You can't see it. They're so tiny. And that's what it takes in this kind of evangelism and in all evangelism. It takes faith to believe the words of Jesus. We just believe it. Jesus told us to go and to, uh, then he'll be with us unto the end. He will make us to become fishers of men if we follow him. So simple in a sense, isn't it? Following Jesus and asking him to lead us to the right people at the right time, the right words to say, takes faith. Believe in him. Small as a grain of mustard seed. For if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, nothing shall be impossible unto you. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. This is a picture of the, the whole Psalm, 126, of a family that was possibly in Babylonian captivity and they came home again as if in poverty. And all they had was just a little bit of a bag of rice or some grain. And uh, it was their, what was left of, in their poverty. And the da daddy decides to take this out into the field that was prepared to sow it. Mama says, and the children say, no, daddy, you can't do this. This is all that's left. What shall we do? We can't eat. But daddy has a vision in mind and he takes it out 
And as he takes it out, he sows in tears. And he knows there will be a harvest. Sometimes this is the way it is in various kinds of evangelism. You sow in tears. There will be a harvest in the right way. A family that was poor. They needed this. But he knew if he didn't sow it, there would be no harvest. And he knew if they just eat it, they can't sow it. And so there'd be nothing left next year. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. There's a go here. The word go is key to mission work. We know that. And there's a flow here. Let the tears flow. There needs to be moisture in the ground to sow seed. And then sow. Sow the seed. Wherever you are, sow it. And there will be a glow as well. God promises a harvest. It's his work. It's his work. It's not our work. We're in his field. And he will lead us to the right place at the right time. Interesting. I think this is a key to world evangelism. To go and let the tears flow. To sow. And then there will be eventually a glow. Precious seed. The word of God is that precious seed. Turn in the book of Ezekiel. A call of God. All these prophets that we read about, and even the minor prophets, had a call of God. We need a call when we go in the mission work. And something else that goes with this type of a call is a church in back of you to not just go out randomly. I have such a craving, you know, with a statement saying, I'm... Uh, I was taught about missions. I just need to go. And we go out randomly somewhere, uh, fly across the next uh, halfway around the world and end up in Uganda or somewhere by ourselves trying to do mission work. No, no. Uh, Wait like the Apostle Paul did. He waited till God, many years he waited till God had, till the church had made preparation for them to send out Barnabas and Paul into the Gentile world, into the Jewish synagogues, and then God blessed that ministry. See, the Apostle Paul was a knowledgeable man, smart as he was, and a Roman citizen. He could have been well-equipped to just go soon after he was converted. But no, he waited on the church. And that's very important in this setting. Now, this man, Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel 2 And notice the first verse, he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. Verse 3, he said, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt... Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, 
for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. Notice these clear words. Clear words of commission to Ezekiel. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee. And thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words. Be not dismayed at their, what? Looks. We've seen it. Angry looks sometimes. Mean words. Yeah, we've had it right up there in New York City. Though they be a rebellious house, and thou shalt speak my words unto them. Notice that. My words. God's words. The words of Scripture. Sow it as you have opportunity. Whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a most rebellious house. Not a very pretty picture, is it? In chapter 3, down here in verse 14, the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I, was, I went in bitterness or in, 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 in his spirit was just full of, uh, he needed to go. And in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Now, wait a minute, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, cool down. Stay cool. Uh, there's a work to be done. We can't do it this way. You need to learn some things. So he sat down, verse 15. I sat in the latter part there. I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. Sitting where they sit is such a very important issue in missions, learning to know them. Now, in, uh, why witness to Jewish people? Well, the Bible is full of this, of the Old Testament even, and for all missions it is full everywhere. Uh, the Egyptian pyramid would give some illustration. You take, the missions isn't like an Egyptian pyramid upside down where you have the peak on one central verse like Matthew 28, 19, 20, which is Jesus' words. We know it, the Great Commission. It isn't that. The Egyptian period is right side, missions, speaking about missions, is right side up. It reaches all the way from Genesis, even chapter 3, where God comes down and talks to Adam and Eve and asks them some questions and gives them a promise of the Savior. Mission work right there in chapter 3 of Genesis, all the way back into the book of Revelation, chapter 22, we find mission work. So we find that everywhere. Jesus had a compassion on his people and commanded his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now Jesus is also interested in the Gentiles as well, like the Syrophoenician woman and others. But he first, this Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 20, or Matthew 9, the very last part. There's something we want to catch here. And when he saw the multitudes, verse 36, Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Oh, what a pitiful sight. If you, ever, if you ever raised sheep or were with sheep or you grew up with them, why, you know some of these stories, you know, sheep need a shepherd. And it's a pitiful sight to see them scattered, especially in, in, the, in the Judean hills. It was a pitiful sight to see sheep scattered. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is great, 
but the laborers are few. How many deer hunters we have here this morning? Deer hunters? Oh, raise your hands. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. You know, you like those antlers, a protruded uh, point. An antler has, you know, maybe four or five or six or maybe even two, but up to eight and ten, you know, different uh, protruding points. You like that. Jesus is making some points here that he wants us to grip and, be, uh, and find a grasp about. First of all, we see, this is not really a point, but maybe we see his character. He was, he was moved with compassion. We need that kind of an experience. We need to stay with the Lord closely. We need to, be to follow him and to become, fish, to become fishers of men. He was moved with compassion. Does, do we see the heart of Jesus for his own people? You know, thousands of them. Up to some of these cities, Capernaum, Bethsaida, uh, uh, others in that Sea of Galilee area, and including Nazareth inland, Father, why had up to the thousands of population at this time. And here we see him moved with the compassion. To be moved with compassion, it's like Loin Nis, a former missionary from India, I think it was, served there 16 years, years, years ago. He was a teacher in Millwood Bible School, so I thought I'd take that class on personal evangelism. One of the first things he said up there in the upstairs room, some of you remember, you know, we didn't have a very large class, very sober-looking man. What comes out of him now? Very, you couldn't hardly crack a smile, uh, tall as he was and so on. He said, I want you to know that if you want a burden for souls, don't just pray about it, you go after them. I never forgot it. Go after them. If you want a burden for souls, you go after them. And uh, so that's the way it was with Jesus. He was deeply moved with compassion, a deep longing burden. The harvest, that's point number one. The harvest truly is great. The labors are few. Is it that way today? Oh, yes, more than ever. The third point here is pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest. The fourth one is that he will send forth labors into his harvest. And the fifth one we find over in chapter 10, in verse 5 and 6, he says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there we have it. Five points, five protruding points. It's the harvest truly is plenteous, labors are few. Pray ye therefore, and that's a very important one. That's one thing that I can do now at this age of my life. I pray that we can always do it. We ought to be praying at the Lord of the harvest. And do you think it seems as though nearly that God will not send? Or will he? Possibly he, he can. But he is touched with our prayers when we pray this prayer. And he, can more easy, he will work then more clearly. And quickly, we believe, if we really pray, that he will send forth labors into his harvest. <clears throat> and then go ye. You know, there's another reason to, to, to evangelize the Jewish people, why witness to them, is there's no other way of salvation. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there's, none other, there's no other Savior. That's Isaiah 48, 11. We know the scripture verse where Jesus said, uh, I, am the, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man shall 
come unto me except through the Father only through Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Very clear. You know, the gospel, turn in the book of Romans. Romans is such a, a lovely, I, I just love the book of Romans because it seems like it's a book that helps bring the Jew and the Gentile together. Paul is moving, thriving uh, toward that. His, his aim is that here in the book of Romans throughout. The gospel, he says, is to the Jew first in verse, we'll start here in verse 14. Four, three IMs, 14 and 15 and 16. I am debtor both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as is written, the just shall live by faith. It's not only revealed in that way, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We want to take a little tour, a bird's eye view to help us in Jewish evangelism, it's needful to get into this book of Romans. So a little bird's eye view of uh, uh, a tour helps in any Bible study. A, uh, that would be not an analytical, but an overall view, a survey study is so good and helpful. Some years ago, I worked at Kaufman's Fruit Farm. That was in 1960. 63, and uh, the manager of the farm decided after we were done pruning, it was about May the 1st, 1963, why um, we decided to go out on, a, on an airplane ride because we finished so early that year in pruning by hand loppers, you know, and crawling the trees with saws and so on in cold winter. Anyway, May the 1st, we were finished. He said, let's go to New Holland. We'll take an airplane ride. It was a time when the the blossoms were a beautiful pink. The peaches, the apples were beautiful white. And we jumped in that little airplane and flew out over Kaufman's Fruit Farm area. And I'll tell you, I never forgot that magnificent sight. Uh, you know, we worked in the orchard, and I loved that. It was beautiful work in among the fruit and the trees and the blossoms and so on. But this was much more picturesque. It was from the heavenly point of view. You know, that's what it takes to enjoy Bible study, young people and elderly. Get into the Word. Enjoy it. Enjoy it from a heavenly viewpoint. Enjoy it. We need to see, have a vision, how God works from eternity to eternity. After all, we're just in a little short slot of time here, aren't we? Just a little bit of time. The night cometh when no man can work. It's time we, we, uh, put, you know, we get our arms uh, back, I mean our, sh- our shoulder to the wheel, and uh, put up our sleeves and work. Because the night cometh when no man can work. And it could be that we might even see that somewhat in some way in our own lifetime. <clears throat> Here we see in chapter 1, in the latter part of the chapter, a judgment upon the Gentile world. Sad, sad, isn't it? What pictures we have. And all oh, the Jewish people reading this book, 
that Paul had written, lay it on, lay it on. Sure, this is just the way it is. But you know, in chapter 2, he comes and talks to the Jewish person. We're also, they're also under condemnation. In chapter 3, judgment is also waiting for them. In chapter 3, the first uh, uh, 22 verses, I think it is, he tells us that all the world is under condemnation. And you know, that is so true. We need to take God's words seriously. This year, uh, earlier in the year, we were focusing a lot on Billy Graham because of his death <clears throat> and some of the things that happened during that time and some of the writings that came up or some of his thoughts came around, you know, and, and uh, came in newspapers and so forth. Billy Graham said, and we know, we, we, we realize we would differ with him in, in some aspects of salvation and so forth, and, uh, but yet he did have a ministry that seemed to have an effect, possibly like no other man ever did, except Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, as far as meeting so many people and truly staying, staying pure and, and holy and uh, true to God all these many 99 years, I think it was. And he said at the beginning of his ministry, we take sin seriously. And we need to take sin seriously in mission work as well. And also we offer hope to the world. And he did that through his preaching. And we need to offer hope to a lost and dying world. Because sin appears 50 times in the book of Romans. Sin has fixed is, is has a fixed displeasure, is seen as a fixed displeasure of God, is obnoxious to God. It cannot enter into heaven. Sin is a terrible thing. Look at Calvary and the death of Jesus Christ. A few weeks understand you have communion, and once more we can in communion time vision how it was for Jesus, how sinful man from mankind is. And this discussion in Romans. It was this problem. Now, God didn't have a problem. He never has problems in a sense. He can always solve them. But it seems nearly like a problem to the Apostle Paul. Yeah. How can a, a righteous, pure, and holy God uh, vindicate or forgive the sinner's soul? How can this be and still remain just and pure and holy and righteous? That's, the, that's the, the picture we find in the book of Romans. In the next chapters in the book of Romans, Romans 1, 2, and 3, till verse, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why the picture is, is, a, is a picture of an ungodly, sinful world. Sin um, is, and then in chapters uh, 4 and 5, deal with the subject, or the latter part of 3 as well. On the subject of the, these beautiful words, propitiation. Has your preachers ever preached on that? I believe they probably have, at least indicated it. It's so important to talk about these good words of Scripture. Reconciliation. Do we want to know what justification means? It's right here. And then chapters 6 and 7 and 8, he talks more about sanctification, holiness, victory in our Christian life. But the question is, how can a righteous, perfect, holy Father cleanse and transform, make holy, whatever were adjectives you want to describe or make on that, you can put it on, declare righteous, 
by declare a person in this condition righteous and then God at the same time can remain righteous, pure, and holy. Well, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the key message of any missions that we never dare forget. We tell, we've often told, our down in orientation, downstairs here, that if, you get, if you're, you're going in the mission work, whether you're going into Mountain View Nursing Home or Hillcrest or the, uh, to the ends of the earth, remember that your first calling is to win souls for Jesus, to glorify God and to win souls for Jesus Christ, to be a light and a testimony. Propitiation is the act of God motivated by his eternal love whereby he accepts the blood of Christ as the complete and satisfying sacrifice for all the human family. Hallelujah. That comes from uh, some of my words, some of, of Mr. Nelson's words from my Bible. This established the eternal principle of oneness or atonement of the Old Testament, oneness between God and man, reconciliation. God can remain holy, just, and righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Now, there is this thing to, for us to receive these complete benefits. And maybe so some people here this morning who never, who, you don't have victory. You're living in a, a casual type of a life. You're living in Romans 7, not in Romans 8. You're somewhere, you know, tossed to and fro. You know, to experience the complete benefits that are made available, we must repent by faith. By faith, receive this provision for us. It will do us no good without that. Now, get a picture. Take a view of Christianity or a view uh, through the eyes of the Jewish community. Now, we're going to New York City. And some of these in, this, in these sections have thousands of families, like Borough Park, where we often went to, <clears throat> Williamsburg, you may have read some books about Williamsburg and how some people, some Rachel story or uh, some others were who have become believers. And this was a, a, you know, a, a shunning like you, like people probably nowhere have ever experienced the, the uh, direction and uh, the things that are set up, how people will, uh, uh, will keep other people from believing what they really feel is the truth. Well, many people, Jewish people, are, uh, uh, if they, uh, we need to see sometimes, to help us to see, view all Jews as Christians, how they see it, unless they see all the Gentile world as Christian in a sense, unless they have bec- uh, embraced Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, or some other religion. To some of them, Hitler was even a Christian in their minds. Not all, but some. When hoodlums broke into a Jewish cemetery in Chicago some years ago, they went and defaced the inscriptions of this Jewish seminary on the tombstones. The Jewish newspapers reported that Christians had done this dastardly deed. Is it any wonder then that the sons of Jacob, you know, have such a... uh, a, a steadfast of unbelief uh, toward Christians and so forth. Learn about the uh, history of Jewish people is so important to help us understand. What we, I want you to follow this the next while here. What we call traditional Judaism today has only uh, has uh, excuse me. What we call traditional Judaism 
was only in its formative stage 2,000 years ago. That's interesting to remember. In being tactful in our Jewish witness, it's important to know that there's three major uh, branches of Judaism. We know about the Orthodox Jews, and then there's the conservative in between that and the Reform. Orthodox, conservative, Reform. Orthodox Judaism, makes, it dates way back to the days of possibly to the second century or the 100s after Jesus and the fifth century when uh, scholars and uh, uh, those who were in authority uh, got together a Talmud that they tried to live by because it needed to do something because of this, of the Christian faith developing and spreading all over the world at that time. Orthodox believe that Torah is truth. Now, there is a myth I want to tell you about this morning that all Jews, it's a myth that people think, you know, that all Jews are well-versed in Scripture in the Old Testament we're talking about, of course. It's not true. You meet Jewish people and you'll find that they're not all uh, well-versed in Scripture as well. They elevate their own Talmud, which is like a commentary of written by men, they elevate that higher than the scripture itself. Although the scripture, they say, is a revelation of God, it is divine origin, and it's written, but they, claim, they put the Talmud, their own writings, higher than, than the uh, scripture writings. Now, ref, going, you have the Orthodox, the Conservatives in the middle, and the Reformed. The reform broke away from the main Jewish body. I mean, from the times of Christ till the uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, the main traditional Judaism was at stake, was in, 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 on the road. That was the main, main issue, main thing going. But in, uh, in Germany especially, they were losing some of these Jewish people and going out into the world and assimilation took place and so they had the, the uh, reformed or more liberal Jews getting liberal views that uh, emerged from the Orthodox and started their own beliefs and own thinking as a compromise to keep these people from drifting out into the world. Maybe it sounds kind of modern, doesn't it? And by the way, we were up in New York City some years ago and they took a little tour through, through one of the sections there of the city where there's lots of hundreds of Jewish people, uh, had a, a, a Jewish rabbi as a guide, and somewhere along the line, he, we asked him, well, how many different kinds of Orthodox groups are there? Since this is a specific group that we were with that day was different from some of the other sections. Oh, he said there's around 200 or so of different Orthodox groups, you see. And so that sounds kind of uh, parallel to our Amish Mennonite uh, uh, thinking here, isn't it? I mean, that's the way it somewhat goes. The conservatives then emerged in the 1800s in Germany as a reaction to the extreme, um, the extreme assimilations that were, that were going on at that time, tendencies that were going toward liberalism. They, they formed their own group to kind of bring things together again to be the middle of the road. In some ways, Messianic faith is basically older 
than the rabbinic faith, Jewish faith. In a biblical sense, messianic Jewish faith dates back to the time of Abraham. In Galatians 3.8, it talks about that. Abraham, the gospel was preached to him. And uh, that's interesting. So in a sense, the messianic Jewish faith, what we know of the messianic Jewish faith is old, really, in that sense. Both of these religious expressions were thorough. Jewish beliefs that went different ways after the time of Christ. We know that in the time of Jesus, uh, the early church was basically all Jewish. Rabbinic faith stood in opposition in believing in Jesus as Messiah after in the 100s, 200s, 300s, 400s when this really developed. And the Jewish became more and more opposed to the Christian church. And the Christian church, sadly, became more and more opposed. Anti-Semitism arose and developed hatred, severe persecution, terrible atrocities increased. If you want to read more about this, get the book, The Fall and Rise of Israel by William Lowe, I think his name is. Interesting. Oh, terrible things happened through the centuries of, of the Jewish people who were scattered. I take you to book of, of Deuteronomy. In 28, some sad verses, and the Lord shall scatter thee among the pe all people from the one end of the earth even unto the other, and there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known even wood and stone. And be among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest, but the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes, and sorrow of mine, and thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were even. And all at even thou shalt say, Would God it were morning, and so on. It goes. There was a scatteration of these people. Sad indeed. Was that a literal thing that happened? Did God say this would happen if they would disobey? Yes, indeed he did. And that is very sad indeed. It did happen because of their rejection of God and worshiping Him and worshiping idols. God had to send them out and to scatter them as He said He would do if this happens. A wandering, a, a, a wandering foot, a trembling heart, a sorrowful mind, a weary body. Deep feeling goes with this type of a story. Now in New York City where we go, uh, they don't wish it were morning, if evening, I don't think so. There's, they're settled there in these large communities having control of their own, law, uh, their own communities by their own laws and uh, very happy and satisfied indeed, in a sense, happy, well, <laughs> in their way. But there's many sad people among them. Deal with Jewish people on a one-to-one -one basis. Best that way. You can't go and set up a tent somewhere and expect to preach with a loudspeaker or take a course up there somewhere. Some years ago, I think it was Joseph Mullet, some of you may know him, he had his group, he, they took his group along, of uh, New Order people, and they went up there on a bus, and they sang different places in the city, but they also went to a Jewish community and, and, and uh, set up right close to his synagogue and sang. And uh, I'm sure some seed was sown there, but you, you just can't really do that and expect too much fruit. That was okay for them to do. It was all right. I don't, I don't uh, 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 you know, not against them for doing that type of a thing. But in your appreciation for Jewish people, 
You need to learn to listen and gain insights to use in your witness. You need to be tactful and take time. Learn some objectives or objections that they have that Jews don't believe in Jesus, they might say. Well, that is that's sad, and that's truly right. In many cases, they don't believe in Jesus and Messiah, but it's, in a sense, an overstatement. It's a serious misconception. It's good maybe if they listen to you. May I take you on a little tour, you could say, through the book of Acts, and show them from the New Testament, if they are listening and if they're open to this, you know that the first in the early church, the growth of the early church from Acts 1 to 8 was practically all Jewish. Twelve Jewish apostles and 120 Jewish people gathered for prayer. The Jewish holiday, the Pentecost, brought together thousands of Jewish people and proselytes that day. Among them was a Jewish fisherman who preached from a Jewish Bible on that Jewish Pentecostal day. And a message was given. 3,000 believed and were baptized. All Jewish as we know them. Since the days of the early church, there have been a faithful remnant of Jews who have followed Jesus as their Messiah. Today, the figure is around, and I'm sure it's conservative, 150 to 200,000 Jewish Messianic Jewish believers across the world. So when somebody says Jews don't believe in Jesus, that's false. Many of them do. And when they do believe in Jesus, it seems they get grasp a hold of the scriptures. They grasp prophecies that talk about the future of Jewish nation and God's blessing upon them. And there are many Jewish believers today. In fact, in Israel alone, I'm told before the 1950s, around 48 to 50, 1950, there were only, there were less than 100 Jewish believers according to statistics. Now that's the statistics now can vary. So you have to give and take. But less than 100 Messianic Jewish believers. Today they say there's over 30,000 of them in the land of Israel. God is working among them. <clears throat> I was born a Jew, I would die a Jew. Well, that's right. You don't need to change your religion. You can still continue to go to the, pen, to the Passover feast and keep it in the way, in that way. You can join all the feasts. And even we as Christians can do that and enjoy it in that way with them. Remember, if a person says, I was born a Jew, I will die as a Jew, they're right. They should die. That's the way it will happen. As it, you, if a person is born that way and they know they're Jewish and they have the... Uh, the DNA according, you know, why they will die that way. Will you fulfill the purpose for God, which God made you? I'm a very religious person. This is something that Jewish people certainly often talk about. I'm not really that bad. Well, you know, people in the Gentile world say these things too. I'm basically a middle-of-the-road person. You know, by whose standards? You could take them to the book of Psalms in 14 where the Apostle Paul repeats this in Romans chapter 3 about the sinfulness of man. And they say we're kind of the middle of the road. There's three groups of people. There are those who are bad, and then those who are kind of good, and there's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in between here. And the Bible doesn't give it that way. Psalm 1, we're either godly or ungodly. And uh, we find it in that way, interestingly. <clears throat> now, this is another thing. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, why is there no peace in our world today on all the sufferings in this world? Why did God allow a holocaust? 
these are very indeed some thoughtful questions that we must address in a godly way. Much prayer should be in, um, in our lips, in our hearts. As we meet these people, we don't, we don't go to them in a way that we know everything. <laughs> because they know a lot, you know. And they might come to you like that lady down there in southern Brooklyn, only about a mile from where Brents live in the Coney Island area. We were out there witnessing to these people and talking to them, maybe passing out a few pieces of literature. We especially like this one here by the uh, World Missionary Press, Wings Over Zion. We like that. That's full of scriptures arranged for Jewish people. And many of them take this, especially the Russian Jews, Russian Jews down in southern um, Brooklyn. And uh, they are more apt to receive it than the American Jews who have been born here and uh, live here for years. European Jews background, the German Jews and so forth, and uh, the uh, Hungarians and, and others are more apt to really be uh, the type that we don't listen. But the Russian Jews more, are more warm. Some are atheists, actually. But uh, some will, many will take literature and listen to you. And anyway, we were sitting there, and this old lady came around, and well, I'm not sure how old she was, maybe if she was, anyway. And she said, hey, why do you come to us? This is an old religion. We've been, you know, in, in the in, in Jewish religion is old. Well, yeah, why do we come to them? It's because we want to share with them the Mashiach. And we often ask them, and they don't know how to answer this. And they don't argue about it. Uh, do you think maybe the Jewish people have missed the Messiah? And they, they often are quiet about that. It's good to make them think about it in a way. It's good to, like it says in Romans chapter 11, to make their hearts uh, anxious and eager and that they are, uh, are provoked to jealousy or to hunger after this religion. Well, uh, concerning the question, how about the Holocaust or why these things? You know, we have a, why isn't there peace in the world if Jesus, the Messiah, claimed to be and bring peace? Well, he will bring peace eventually, we can share with them. We have a peace in our hearts that the world cannot take away. Peace will come. And not all people during the Holocaust died or not all the babies were killed during the time of Pharaoh and Herod. Or in Haman's, in Haman's case, his evil, intended, his evil intents were halted. And during the Crusades, that eventually stopped. You know, it's very important to have wisdom to know how to answer these, uh, to talk to these people. But uh, uh, some points of interest maybe would be for you. Do not be too eager to really get a good audience in your visits with them. You cannot catch fish until they nibble, you know. And do not give your Jewish friend too much spiritual food for thought. He might get indigestion or turn back on you as a rule. But it's good to uh, befriend them in some way. Several years back, my wife and I, we were uh, up in, uh, Marilyn and I were up in New York City with the Jot Jewish Outreach Team, which usually meets over the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
And by the way, next year is in October, and you're certainly welcome to go along for that again. It's such an interesting time uh, to be together in the various Jewish communities and somehow talk to them and uh, learn to ask questions. Anyway, we were praying that the Lord would lead us that day. It was one of the first, it was the first year we actually had Jewish outreach team and uh, we were walking down the street there of Williamsburg, and a fellow comes along and taps me on the shoulder, and in the taller than I am, and he had white socks up to his knees, and very plainly dressed in black, and so forth, and I knew he was a Jew. He said, can you come to our house and light the fire? I said, what? Uh, light a fire? Yes, yes, just follow me. Come to our house. Oh, okay, very good. So we up down the street, and... Uh, unlocked the door, the front door, walked through the hallway and up to the third story. Here was an immaculate Jewish home. They had 14 children. Now, many of them were married and some grandchildren as well. And all they wanted me to do is light the stove because it was a serious Jewish holiday on uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they don't light the fire like we read about in the book of Numbers. On the, so they have to go out and find a Gentile. And so that was a wonderful opportunity. Did we talk to them about Messiah right off the bat there? No. In fact, we've gone down there several times. And they always invite us in freely. This last uh, uh, September, just several weeks ago, we, were, we finally found the place. We didn't have their address anymore. Didn't have their phone number. Through moving, you know, sometimes these things get lost and I didn't look too hard. And anyway, we prayed. And the Lord led us there. And he was looking out the window. Some man had called him about us, I guess, and he looked out the window, and uh, there, yeah, and there we were. And we looked up and he invited us in again. Mr. Abraham Zig and Mr. And Mrs. And uh, we asked how many grandchildren they have. Oh, many. They don't even know. They have 14 children. They're all married. And about eight, they knew how many great grandchildren they had. Interestingly enough, I told them about how God led us to you that day. It was Someone, it was a miracle of God leading us because we didn't have their, it was a large Williamsburg. I was thinking that it was on the east side of the Interstate 278 of Maryland. Said, no, she didn't say much, you know. It, it, she, she said, it's, it's on the west side. It's on the side where they are close to the river there, the Hudson River. And oh, I just didn't think so. But anyway, we found it. God led us there. And I told him about this. And we told him about some more things. And I hope we are welcome back again. We'll go back again. We'll find their, well, we have their address now. Anyway, it's a, it's a rewarding type of work, in a sense, if you follow God's direction in the right way. And it's not a kind of work where you can have a lot of names that you add to that are now become messianic believers. It's not that kind of, it's a slow type of work where you have to take much time uh, with the Lord and with others. And read through the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11 and see the Apostle Paul's heart here in chapter 9, especially as it was read earlier about his heart. It is no, it is very, very clear who he's talking about. Some people want to make this appear as though he's talking to the Gentiles, not Jews, but it's definitely a Jewish nation he's talking about. And it's his own people. And he has a regular compassion, a real compassion, and a redemptive compassion for them. He even wishes that he himself would be accursed from uh, them in that way. And then 
in chapter 10, we find the present situation of Israel. Chapter 9, the past of Israel. Chapter 10, the present time of Israel. And chapter 11, the future of Israel. And this gives us courage. There's somewhat of a blessing in talking to Jewish people because you know that there's a future that they have that God promises them if they believe in Jesus. And that will happen someday in a greater way. Notice in chapter 11, verse 11, have they stumbled that they fall? Where in the very beginning of the chapter, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, uh, perish the thought. He has not uh, done away with his people. He's still working in their hearts and in their lives. And that's what gives us courage to keep going back. And we've, I actually, we found that the day that maybe there's just an inkling of a little bit more reception to hearing and listening about some of the Old Testament prophecies. And you don't say Old Testament to them, you just say the scriptures. Because if you let the word Old Testament out, they know you believe in the new, and they might anyway for that matter. But anyway, you just say the scriptures. And here he says in chapter 11, verse 11, God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentile, how much more their fullness. And you can read in the book of Revelation about 144,000 coming to the Lord and being sealed. And then right after that picture is a great scene of Gentile people in heaven giving glory to God. Right immediately after that scene of the 144,000. I would think these 144,000 Jewish men are like the Apostle Paul. They're not married. Do they use modern, modern media to t preach the gospel? It could be. Well, you might ask, why, why even go to them if 144,000 more Jewish people are going to be saved in, the saved in the future? Well, we must know that some of these might have some experiences coming during the tribulation that's really not recorded totally as, as we know it. But there might be another holocaust someday, we don't know, for, for them to be awakened to the fact that Jesus is their Messiah indeed. God be blessed. God be praised. It's an interesting work, although we can come home from New York City at times wondering what is there, what's the use? Why continue? And by the way, if you want to know more about the three branches, I've talked to me about it. I have some more papers like this at home. I'll try and send it to you. And there's many books that are out there available that even a, a Mennonite writer, J. Paul Grable, wrote a book about Jewish evangelism some years ago. And it seemed like in one ear of the Mennonite church there was more interest in this work than it is today. And, uh, but I, we'd like to, maybe this could be a means of just encouraging us. I understand thousands of, uh, or hundreds, I should say, of Jewish people from these communities in New York City come uh, often over the Feast of Tabernacles. They have a certain time slot in there, several days, when they can go out and visit like this and be tourists. And uh, there's a, a redemptive analogy that we can use while we're there. We say we're from the Amish country. And I can even tell them that I was Amish one time. And that perks up their ears. There's just something about the plain community around here that they like. And they come down here to observe. 
who these people are that are diverse from the main world stream, you know. And uh, it's interesting to them to find some other groups of people that they can come somewhat identify with. And it makes a bridge, it kind of is like a bridge to be able to uh, share with them some good news that they've never heard about maybe or that they would long for. And uh, we are t- we're told to make them jealous. And that means hunger after it and long for it. And we need to pray for them. We need to pray for labors to be sent out. By the way, in New York City today, under the Destinations Missions, there are now two couples. One couple just moved there uh, by the name of Brent and his wife, I um, can't remember her name, uh, Mary Ellen Rosenbury. And they're living in Brooklyn. They're planning to live in Brooklyn and work in Jewish evangelism along with Wayne Rutz. Uh, Brent's also go with them at times once a week or so to these streets and missions and, and, uh, and streets and communities and talk to them, talk to people about the Lord. Do pray for them. There's also two single girls. But uh, uh, we plan to go some more, maybe during the winter and next summer, as the Lord leads us, and I'd be glad to take some people along and to visit these people and share with them the gospel. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. It's clear. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a commission. And we thank you for living in a land of freedom and where we have the opportunity to go from this place to another place to share the good news of the kingdom, even to Jewish people. We thank you. We pray that you would send for laborers and workers. We pray, dear Lord, for the peace of Jerusalem. And I guess when we're praying for that, we would pray, dear Lord, that you would bring about your end-time events that precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we could be a people that would send forth labors and be alert to this, whether it's here close at home or in some nursing home or uh, in some foreign field land. Will you direct and bless? There's needs, Father. We understand the Amish Mennonite aid has some specific needs in some places. We pray. Would you fill those places and even call out of for people who are filled with the spirit of love and of God and can reach them in this way. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.